2: Visit Carvana.com
1: or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable.
2: Ah.
0: This is the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Sponsored by Raytheon.
2: The CIA was great. It gives real responsibility and real authority to young officers. That was something that it instilled a a work ethic in me that I think I've been able to carry over in Congress. The entire world should be hopeful that the issue of North Korea gets solved diplomatically. We have to continue to keep sanctions moving forward. We have to keep that pressure up.
1: You serve on the House Intelligence Committee. Chairman Devin Nunes has taken quite a bit of heat.
2: Devin is ultimately doing what he thinks is, is best. I think your listeners need to know the Intelligence Committee is more than just one person.
1: Will Hurd is a Republican representative for Texas's 23rd Congressional District which stretches 800 miles from San Antonio to El Paso. Before being elected to Congress, Will served as a CIA operations officer for nearly a decade. He is widely respected as one of Congress's experts on national security. He serves on the Committee of Oversight and Government Reform, the House Homeland Security Committee, and the House Permanent Select Intelligence Committee. I had a chance to catch up with Will recently to talk about the national security issues facing the nation. Will and I will start our discussion after a word from our sponsor, Raytheon. This is Intelligence Matters, and I'm Michael Morrell.
0: Podcast presented by Raytheon. From connected devices to infrastructure to critical mission systems, Raytheon crosses networks, markets, and continents, defending every side of cyber to make the world a safer place.
1: Congressman, it is great to have you on the show, and it is always good to see you.
2: It's great to be with you.
1: So you've taken an interesting trajectory to get to where you are what triggered your interest in working for cia and how did you end up there
2: well what what triggered my interest is i I was at texas a&m university and texas a&m university sends more people uh, to the cia than even the academies now and i was a computer science major and i'm walking across campus i see a sign that says take two journalism classes in mexico city for 425 dollars and I had 450 bucks in my bank account. So I go to Mexico. It was a good deal. It was yeah, good it really deal. was. It really was. And it was cool being in another culture. I thought it was awesome seeing things I'd only read about in books. And I added international studies as a minor. My first class I took, I had a guest lecturer, Jim Olson. And he was, he when he left the CIA, he was the deputy director of CI. Um, he was involved. Counterintelligence. In counterintelligence. He, he was involved in the hunt. In, for for some notorious spies in, in the CIA's history, and he told the most amazing stories, and that began my interest in in the agency. And he's probably
1: the main reason why Texas A and M sends so many folks to CIA because he inspires I, them. He
2: does one hundred percent. His wife, you know, I always have to tell people that know Jim. I'm like, his wife was a better officer than he was <laughs> when he was <laughs> in the CIA, and, and she's she's great too. And so I, I applied. And when I graduated at twenty two I went fresh in, into the agency and I actually started I was driving my Toyota forerunner from San Antonio to Washington D.C. the day of the USS Cole. Mm-hmm. And that kind of was that's the start of, of my career in the agency.
1: And what do you what do what do you recall about your career? What would you want folks to know about? Working at
2: CIA, it was it was a great job. I did you know two years in training at the head headquarters, and then also at what I used to call our super secret CIA training facility, super farm. secret, yeah. But now <laughs> yeah. it's on Google Maps, right? Uh, two years India, two years in Pakistan. Um, I did interagency work, and then I managed all of our undercover operations in Afghanistan. And it was to be able to work on the most important national security issues of the day was incredibly rewarding. And, and I always say that the CIA was great. It gives real responsibility and real authority to young officers. And I still miss the ethos of the place. Yes is the answer, you know, what is the question? And that can-do attitude. You can't, you don't have the opportunity to say, oh, you know what, we don't have enough money to do that. Or I don't have enough officers to to try to penetrate that terrorist organization and stop them from blowing up Americans on our homeland. You don't think that way. You didn't act that way. And that was something that it it instilled a a work ethic in me that I think I've been able to carry over in Congress. So then what triggered your interest in running for public office? (laughs) So so I'm in, I was in Afghanistan, and a bomb goes off in front of the embassy about 3.30 in the morning, takes out a section of the wall, kills some of our local guards, and my unit was responsible for trying to figure out what happened. We conduct about two dozen operations in a short period of time, which was a lot for us. And we had a CODEL, a congressional delegation, to be at the embassy later that evening. And I was supposed to be there to brief, and I go into the briefing. And the first thing I overhear is a member of Congress saying, is the CIA going to cut this briefing short so we can get to the bazaar to buy rugs? I'm annoyed. And walking in the briefing – First question, the the person that asked the question was had been on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence for four years and asked why – this was 2007, 2008, by the way – and asked, why was Iran not supporting the Taliban in Afghanistan the way Iran was supporting other groups in Iraq? Pretty crummy question, but at least he got all the players right, and so I started explaining the Sunni-Shia divide. And he raises his hand and he says, Heard, what's the difference between a Sunni and a Shia? And I'm thinking he's getting ready to make a really inappropriate joke. And who am I to deny him that opportunity? And my response was, I don't know, Congressman, what's the difference? Mm. And his face goes bright red, didn't know that difference in Islam. Right? I always say it's okay for my brother not to know that. But for someone who's making decisions on sending our boys and girls to places like Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, it's unacceptable. Making decisions on how we're spending billions of hard-earned taxpayer dollars is unacceptable. And those, that's just one example of the kinds of behavior I saw when I was briefing members of Congress when I was overseas. And I had friends that ran races and they said, have you ever thought about District 23? And it was basically where I grew up. And so I moved from Kabul, Afghanistan to San Antonio to run for Congress. And how did that transition
1: work from the secret world to this (laughs) very public world? And from a world of, you know, that can do, right, to a right. world of protect yourself and how did that transition work for you?
2: So I, I had never since I was undercover and I was uh, I was undercover in all my my entire time in the agency, I never said the three initials out loud. And it was so strange basically saying it all the time. And but what was interesting to to me and, and my district is it's 29 counties, two time zones, 820 miles of the border. It takes 10 and a half hours to drive across it. It's larger than 26 states, and it's the size of the state of Georgia. Oh. Right? And, and San Antonio is the seventh largest city in the country, cybersecurity city USA. El Paso is a gr- growing city, but there's more cows than people in between. And what was interesting when I would when I would go out when I first started campaigning, people would always come up to me and say thank me thank me for my service. And it was a strange phenomenon because that didn't happen when when I was in my career. And usually people reserve that to folks that was in the military. And so one of the things I've always said when I see my friends that are still in and still toiling, I am always tell them people outside the Beltway, outside the Washington, D.C. area, really appreciate and understand the sacrifices um, that men and women in our our intelligence community are, are taking.
1: Well, history was just made at CIA with Gina Haspel being mm-hmm. sworn in as the first female director. What challenges do you think she faces? What would you like to see her focus on as director?
2: Well, I think one of the first things that, that she automatically brings is some consistency. Um, there was a lot of changes in the the CIA, organizational changes that were jarring to a lot of people, with Mike Pompeo came in, he tried to sit and settle that down, and you know, re- remember what the individual officers are doing. And so, so she's going to be able to continue doing that. But we have to rearray or rethink our collection against our strategic threats. There's been a lot of conversation about Russia and what did the Russians want or not want. The reason we can't clearly answer that is our strategic collection on Russia, on Vladimir Putin is not as good as it should be or can be. I think, you know, we the, the intelligence community needs to be reorienting similar to the way DOD and what General Mattis is doing on DOD against some of our major threats like China. Um, China is, you know, the, the, you don't need you know, CIA collection or NSA collection to understand what China is trying to do. China is trying to become a world superpower by 2049 and they have a 25 year plan they now have an emperor basically that can execute on this plan they're trying to dominate in all the future technology and what they're doing is they're stealing technology from America they're forcing American companies to operate in China in a certain way that allows them access to that intellectual property and we need to make sure that we're prepared to deal with that. A China for the first time has a military base outside of China in Djibouti. I guess it was last year when it was created. Everybody knows about the one belt one road strategy of connecting resources back into China. So we for the last almost two decades we've been fighting a non-conventional war in terrorism. And and I always tell people so so I was in CTC um, I, I was in the CTCSO, Counterterrorism Center. Counterterrorism Center, Special Operations Division, on September twelfth, two 2001. If you would have told me the day after 9-11 that it would have been another 17 years before an, a, a, an attack of that scale on the United States, I would have said you were crazy. And the reason that hasn't happened is because the CIA has been at war for 17 years. And it's hard to imagine that. I always say if people understood, understood the size of the CIA – and And how small it really is they wouldn't they only knew there'd be be, be (laughs) (laughs) and so collecting against terrorism takes a different skill set different tactics techniques and procedures than it does against a strategic threat like China and Russia and that transition or that evolution is one thing that Gina is going to have to uh, is going to have to deal with
1: so let's march through the the threats Mm -hmm. facing the United States here, um, and we could talk about each one of these for for an hour but let's start with Iran do you support the US withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal and how do you see this playing out
2: so I do support pulling out of the deal I thought the deal was a it was a bad deal in the, in the first place and it was based on a presumption that the Iranian government was going to change its ways and the Iranian government has lied to and misled the IAEA on countless of occasions. They have lied to and misled the U.N. Security Council on countless occasions. They are funding terrorist organizations that are killing Americans. Now, the only way we can deal with Iran effectively is with our allies. And so that's the most difficult piece about pulling out of of an agreement um, like the 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 JCPOA, and and I always I always butcher what that is, but everybody refers to it as the Iran deal. So how do we now get Germany, UK, and France on board with this notion of more needs to be done towards Iran? And so what this Plan B or Phase Two is going to be? We have about ninety days um, before sanctions snap back is the wrong word, but before we reinstitute sanctions on any company that is dealing with the Iranians, and that's going to impact many of our allies. And National Security Advisor Bolton has already said that this is going to apply to everyone. We really need to go into an intense conversation right now. So what other areas should we be looking at? The Iranian government is interested in pursuing a, a nuclear weapon, and they have the likelihood to use it, and we have to recognize that. And the only way the, – the reason they came to the table under the last administration was because sanctions were working. And we had them on their, on their knees, and we gave up all the tools um, that we got there. And so I hope we don't make that same mistake with North Korea. Yeah. So let's
1: go to North Korea. Yeah. So this historic summit is, is a few weeks away if it happens. Mm-hmm. What do you see – are you optimistic or pessimistic about the outcome of this
2: thing? The entire world – should be hopeful that the issue of North Korea gets solved diplomatically. Nine months ago, you had uh, people wondering whether we should be doing duck and cover drills because we thought we were going to potentially have a nuclear war. So diplomacy and solving this through diplomacy is the best way to go. Now, uh, the recent hiccups where uh, you know Kim Jong-un, the dictator of North Korea, said that training exercises could continue, and he expected that to continue. He's kind of backing off on that. So he's showing some of the same behavior he has shown, and, North, and his, his father and his grandfather has, have shown in the past of make, uh, agreeing to something and then walking back. The way we're going to get through that is we have to continue to keep sanctions moving forward. We have to continue the diplomacy with China. Uh, two years ago, nobody would have expected China to work with us. Kim Jong-un knew that one more round of sanctions on North Korea would have prevented him from being able to prosecute a conventional war. So he knew that the noose was was tightening around his neck. We have to keep that pressure up. We also have to keep the pressure of moving our 7th Fleet into that region and making sure we have the military capabilities there. And that's another reason why the Ch- Chinese want to see this situation resolved because they don't want to see our 7th Fleet – in in that part of the world. So it's tricky, but I I believe that uh, continued engagement, if we're talking, we're not fighting, and that's the right way to go. We'll be right back
1: with more Intelligence Matters after a word from our sponsor.
0: In the next gen controls of tomorrow's UAVs, in the high tech guidance systems of tomorrow's weapons, in the supercomputers mounting tomorrow's cyber defense. Raytheon is there, driving innovation that helps the U.S. Army protect people, information, and infrastructure. Together, we're making the world a safer place.
1: You mentioned, Will, you mentioned both Russia and China. On on Russia, do you think that the United States is doing enough to push back against Russian efforts to weaken us overseas and to weaken us
2: here at home to answer that question it starts with what is Russia trying to do what what is Vladimir Putin's interest and it's real simple he said it himself he said I think it was 2004 when he said the the greatest the, the worst thing that have happened in this century was the collapse of the USSR so he is trying to reestablish the territorial integrity of the USSR he wants to have diplomatic veto power over the countries around Russia he's trying to have political veto power and economic veto power over those countries and what is getting in his way little thing called NATO and what is who is the backbone of NATO the United States of America he knows he can't take on NATO or the US militarily Vladimir Putin knows he can't take us on economically so that's why he has to resort to asymmetrical warfare that's why he's trying to erode he can't trust. be strong himself so he needs to weaken us absolutely and 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 guess what what do you think the moldovans think when russia trying to manipulate our elections you know the greatest and and most powerful democracy on the planet and what do the moldovans think about what you know the if the russians can do it there they're, they're going to be able to do it in, in Chișinău, right and and so that's the the step so what else should we be doing sanctions are important i think the round of finally doing the round of sanctions on some of these oligarchs which is what really hurts putin by by attacking the money i actually think in a place like eastern ukraine we should be using our latest and greatest when it comes to electronic warfare the russians this is not a separatist movement that's happening in eastern ukraine it is an invasion of a sovereign country and, and the fact that the Russians have been able to trick people into talking about it as if it's a separatist movement is, is an example of the power of, of asymmetrical warfare. And so I think we should be doing more with our friends in Ukraine. I think a country like Georgia, which even though they're not part of NATO, they're a cooperating partner. Right now they're doing even more than the Turks are. We should be showing support to allies in the region. Moldova is a place I, I've, I've traveled to, to recently. So we need to be showing support to those places. And we need to be doing basic things. Why isn't MTV shown on television in Eastern Europe? It's not at, at any, I haven't been able to, to find it. What do the Russians do? The Russians are selling their Russian soap operas to that part of the world and they, they give them 50 minutes. 40 minutes of it is the soap opera. 10 minutes of it is their news, which is ultimately propaganda. Uh, We should be beaming old episodes of Oprah and modern family into that part of the world because we have forgotten that our soft power is probably more important than our hard power. And, and now when you have embassies are the most – U.S. embassies are the most fortified places in another country. they not welcoming. It, it's, it's a bad symbol. It's a bad sign that we're, we're saying. So more sanctions, absolutely. I don't think we can do enough against Russia. We need to call them out whenever they're doing um, cyber attacks on, on our infrastructure, on our industry, on our government. And we need to make sure that we're building – we're continuing to strengthen our, our relationship with NATO because they're a critical piece. In dealing with Russia
1: so now even a harder question you talked about the strategic challenge the Chinese mm-hmm. posed to the United States of America and I couldn't agree more with you mm-hmm. what do we do about it sure what what is the right US
2: approach to this very long-term problem I would probably characterize China as our frenemy right? because we do have a lot of economic ties that are important to both countries uh, first it's recognizing that they're actually a problem and I look at when venture capital, which I which is the pointy end of capital, in 20 years ago, 92 percent of venture capital was deployed in the United States, America. In 2017, it was only about 52 percent. That delta is made up by China and, and also France. Uh, last year in 20, that was 2016 numbers, excuse me, 2017, eight of the top 10 VC deals in China were in China. So there's a lot of things we should be doing. One. We need to be making sure that we're doubling down on some of this technology they're trying to race to. Artificial intelligence, quantum computing, these the, – the, the Chinese understand this. They've identified 10 areas that they want to be best in the world in. And then they're stealing it from us and they're building it themselves. We also need to change our immigration laws. So – that when a a young Chinese student comes over here and studies at Texas A&M or Georgetown, that uh, they're able to stay here in the U.S. and work for a U.S. company or start their company here in the United States of America. We also need to be engaging. Pulling out a TPP or pulling out a talks of TPP was a terrible idea. If if you want our world economy to be rules-based, we got to be engaged. We got to be a part of that. And so, engaging in multilateral forms like there's some talk about the president relooking at TTP. Is that is that what you hear? Um, yes, and and, and that, that is a debate. We we got to get NAFTA right first, right? Um, I I think some of the recent decisions with China, it's almost like we're being we're we're not being as tough with China as we are with our own allies, right? Uh, Mexico, we're lucky to have Mexico and Canada as our neighbors. And, and one of the things I learned when I was in the CIA, be nice with nice guys and tough with tough guys. Mm-hmm. And, and I think right now when it comes to trade, we're doing the opposite. Uh, but we should be engaging in Vietnam. We should be engaging further with Taiwan. We should be working with our allies like Australia on these issues. We need to be making sure that we're helping on infrastructure projects in Africa And so we still have an opportunity to deal with China's economic threat that they're doing um, in the rest of the world. But we have to have a a whole government strategy. And we also need to be making sure that we're doing things that allow our businesses to be competitive in those parts of the world as well, too.
1: So, Will, you've done a a lot of thinking on cyber. The four countries we just talked about Mm -hmm. are a big part of the nation state threat Mm -hmm. you know, vis-a-vis cyber. And then you have organized crime, of course. What do you think? The government's role should be in defending private networks how do you think about that
2: so I, I think in some ways it's, it's real simple if it's been identified as critical infrastructure then the government should play a role and and what is that role I think we need to make it clear we need to say when there is a threat what is the role of the FBI or the NSA in that case and what is the role of that company that may what, let, let's say it's a, um, a utility provider and then what is the role of, you know, they may be using third-party services. We need to be understanding what everybody's role and responsibility is. We need to also, um, the thing that I've learned when I was out in the private sector, there's a lot of really amazing This is talent. one of the things you focused on when you were in the private sector. I, absolutely. I, so, so I ran for Congress the first time and I lost, and I became a partner consulting firm, helped start a cybersecurity company. And, and one of the things that I, I've learned is that the talent that's out in, in the private sector. So, the utility sector or let's take let's take financial services the the financial services industry have a better idea where the next wave of russian malware is going to come than the NSA does so why don't we turn some of those assumptions into collection priorities get that to our friends in the intelligence community go collect that information so that we all federal government and the private sector are able to better defend ourselves against that threat so you
1: would turn that government knowledge then back to the private sector so they can better defend themselves
2: for sure particularly in the
1: critical infrastructure space
2: it it is and and we're having a problem now in the cyberspace of of how you look at there's always a tension between intelligence and action right intelligence professionals don't ever want to do anything with the intelligence because it may impact sources right you may lose that stream of intelligence but sometimes you have to act on that intelligence, and by acting on that intelligence, you may lose that intelligence. And so when it comes to the cyber world, once something is out, everybody gets to have access to it. So we need to rethink how we and what is really considered classified in when it comes to cybersecurity when it comes to defending our, our infrastructure. And that's a that's a long term conversation, and it's something we need to be doing with the public and the private sector, especially around people that are considered critical infrastructure.
1: The administration just eliminated the top cyber job um, in the NSC, saying it was duplicative and it needed to be streamlined. Good idea, bad idea. What do you think?
2: So I would almost say to be determined, because the deputy national security advisor has a deep background in cybersecurity, ran cybersecurity companies or divisions, cybersecurity divisions in large uh, private sector companies. So so she has that capability. Um, but also they, they, they didn't eliminate the other working level folks that were dealing with cyber. It, it eliminated a, a management position. This now goes directly to the deputy. Um, Whether the deputy of the NSA has the bandwidth to handle all of these issues, that's to be determined. I think the decision that was made that I hope Secretary Pompeo changes was the elimination of the ambassador-at-large for cybersecurity at the State Department because we need to be engaging and we need to be making sure that every country has criminal laws when it comes to cyber attacks, and the State Department is playing that lead, and and the elimination of that position – I think has bigger impact on working with our allies and making sure that we're bringing everyone together and, and having a and defining what good cybersecurity looks like, what national what what norms, what international norms are supposed to look like, and I hope that's an issue that Secretary Pompeo rethinks.
1: So maybe this is the most important question. Will you've answered all of the questions related to the threats facing the United States by talking about the significant role the U.S. has to play Mm -hmm. in the world, right? Something I believe, and I know you believe it, if we don't, there's a vacuum, and the vacuum gets filled by Mm -hmm. bad guys.
2: 100%. The
1: question, right, the question is, how do you talk to your constituents about why that's important? Because there's a a lot of people in the United States who say we have our own problems. Mm -hmm. We should focus on our problems here at home. We should not worry about problems overseas. How do you talk to your folks about why this is important?
2: You know, the The longer I've been in Congress, the more I think about very broad questions What is the u s s role in the rest of the world, right, and why is that ultimately important to us? and It starts with and, and I think the the way I do it is I take issue by issue. Why does Afghanistan and Syria matter to the United States of America because there cannot be a failed state where terrorist organizations are able to plan, train, and equip to attack our homeland, period, end of story. It is a fraction of the cost to deal with the problem over there before it comes to our homeland. Take the, the the threat of China. Our ability to export our culture, our products to the rest of the world has what has allowed our standard of living in order to increase. And we are the ones that have made the world more stable. We are the ones that have been able to export democracy to other parts of the world. And, and we, we have to remember that. I, I think it's, it's real simple. For those of us that understand these things, we have to continue to talk about them. And we've taken stuff for granted. I, I talked earlier about NATO. There's 70 years of peace and prosperity in Europe. Why? Because of NATO. There's never been 70 years of peace and prosperity except for this most recent period. And so the fact that NATO even came up as a topic on the campaign in 2016 is kind of crazy to me. So I, I think the folks that I interact with are patriotic. They understand the role that we have. And I talk to kids as much as I can. And I usually tell a story about my time in the CIA. And, and my point of the stories is that the United States of America is the only country in the world that has the resources and the willingness to help people even if they're 6,000 miles away. And that's, that ethos is what our country is about and what we're built on. And we got to make sure that we are leading in the rest of the world.
1: Well, you serve on the House Intelligence Committee, which I guess has had something of a rough year, at least according (laughs) to the media. What are your takeaways from how the Russia investigation was conducted? You know, could it have been conducted better? How do you think about that? Put that in context for us.
2: So I've only been on the committee for about a year and a half and. Speaker Ryan put you on there. Speaker Ryan put me on there after Mike Pompeo went over to the CIA. I was Pompeo's replacement. And during my time in the CIA, I saw how when you had members of the Intelligence Committee come overseas, it was done in a bipartisan way. There are multiple investigations. And ultimately, the House, we were trying to look at what actually happened. What was the government's response to it? How could the government's response have been better, and what can we be doing in order to prevent this or be prepared for this in the future? I always think the best way to do things is together and in a bipartisan way. It was unfortunate that things began to break down, um, but we also found at our federal law enforcement and intelligence agencies, it appeared that uh, political leaders of those organizations were putting their thumb on the scale, and we give so much authority to these individuals and that we have to hold them to the highest of standard. Now, that's why I think um, Bob Mueller should be allowed to continue his work and turn over every stone and follow every lead. I think this Department of Justice Inspector General report about, you know, now it's probably going to be widening is good for our institutions to make sure that they are ultimately above reproach. It's Congress's role to provide oversight, and when that oversight is done in a bipartisan way, it's always better, and to ensure that there's transparency.
1: Particularly with the intelligence community, right, which secret organizations operating in a right. democracy, right, there has to be somebody to tell the American people that the law is being followed, the resources are being used mm. efficiently,
2: and that they're sure. effective, right? It's incredibly important. Every, every time I travel overseas and I meet with my fellow parliamentarians they all ask us questions about what their intelligence services are doing because it is rare to have civilian oversight of the intelligence community and that is one of the hallmarks of our institutions and so it's a serious role I'm glad I'm able to be there to to leverage uh, my understanding and having spent almost a decade in the community And and know how it works Um, but this is it's that civilian oversight is so important to making sure that the American people trust these organizations and ultimately I think they do
1: so your chairman Devin Nunez has taken quite a bit of heat what do you want my listeners to, to know about Devin
2: Devin is ultimately doing what he thinks is is best And he cares about the institutions of the intelligence community, the institutions within the intelligence community. I think your listeners need to know that the intelligence committee is more than just one person. And there's many of us that are trying to work in a a bipartisan way on these individual issues.
1: You know, one of the things I would say to you, Will, is thank you for your service on the committee because there's not a lot of political credit. There aren't big intelligence bases, right, in districts, <laughs> and there aren't big defense contractors selling a lot of stuff to the intelligence community. So it's extraordinarily important work for which there's not a significant political payoff. So thank you for your service.
2: No, it, it's my pleasure. It's, it's my passion. It's interesting to see how things have come full circle. I decided to run for office because of my exposure to the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and now I'm sitting on that committee and and trying to prevent some of those things that I saw when I was in.
1: Will, it was great to have you with us.
2: Always a pleasure. Thank you.
1: That was Congressman Will Hurd, and this was Intelligence Matters. Please join us again next time.